Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare. This week, former U.S. Secret Service Special Agent John Wackrow on Secret Service Dilemmas and Training. Every single tactic that we deploy today has a history. There's a lineage back to why are we doing this? That's what makes the Secret Service so great is that they're constantly trying to improve. Threats will take the path of least resistance and they'll keep pressure testing to find that least resistance. You have to make sure that you find it first and mitigate it so a threat doesn't exploit that vulnerability. I have seen the President of the United States say, I am not doing X. And because of a clear and present life safety issue, either you're gonna do it on your own or we're physically going to make you do it. John, it is great to be talking to you. I I used to associate you with with goodness because we we would chat and I'd always get a smile on my face and I'd and I'd leave in a better place. But the last couple of years, I haven't seen you in person except on CNN and that's usually when bad shit went down. How does it feel to be associated in in so many people's eyes with public tragedy? Well, that's a great question, David. You know, and it's something that myself and my colleagues, the other law enforcement analysts, we've 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 often talked about that, you know, over the past few years is that we're we're never brought in for any type of good story. We're always brought in uh, in the middle or in the aftermath of some sort of uh, you know tragic situation mm-hmm. where you have to give near real-time commentary uh, to to a very discerning audience about what is going on, like what is happening. And you may not even understand yourself what is happening. And right. I, I I look at moments of like being woken up in the middle of the night for the Las Vegas shooting. No, that that was going on. And we went on the air right away and stayed on for hours. And, you know, that does you you start getting associated with these tragedies. And you're marked by when you provided that commentary on the Garlic Festival shooting or Las Vegas or Parkland. All of these tragedies add up. Mm -hmm. But what you start seeing is the commonality around a lot of these tragic situations. And as as time has gone on, you almost can get into a little bit of predictability around, you know, what what was that motive? Like, was there some sort of grievance? What type of individual uh, would cause this type of of horrific situation? So um, it's, it's tough to be associated with tragedy all the time when you're giving that commentary but I think that if there's any type of positive is that you're able to bring some sort of resolution to that issue because of your institutional knowledge that you've garnered by covering these tragedies for so long. Yeah, I mean, and, that's the answer that I expected you to give, right? Because you, you, you do tend to go on when, honestly, people have been shot or, or otherwise mm-hmm. hurt. That's the most common thing. Sometimes it is a Uh, report about a security scare at the White House where someone has not been injured or killed, but most often people are dead. But it seems like the way to say, you know, I'm I'm adding value here is to explain this is what could have led to the situation, but we need the facts. This is what law enforcement at various levels is doing in response to the threat and in the investigation. So 
you're helping people come to grips with it. You're not you're not wallowing in the tragedy. You're actually trying to provide some sense of order to impose some stability to the situation. Well, and I think that's you know that's right, David. And the reason being is that you know as a as a risk practitioner broadly, I spend a lot of my time on what we refer to as like the left of boom, the preparedness for any type of eventuality, whether it's a uh, a tactical issue, whether it's a natural disaster, any type of, uh, of event, if you think about it in like two, you know, three phases, actually, preparation, response, and recovery, distilling it down very simply, that preparation side then allows me in that moment to mm-hmm. bring some clarity as to what is going on. Because, you know, crisis situations are unpredictable, they're dynamic, they're multifaceted, People are confused as to what exactly is going on. And if you can try to bring some logic to that confusion to help lower anxiety in the moment, give them some clarity of what are first responders, public safety, what are they doing to address this situation, it starts to bring a sense of calm. Not immediately, but that's what you try to do every time that you get on air, you're you're literally you handed this this situation that you may not have any idea about, but you learn very quickly. And there's a nomenclature to managing a crisis. And if you start just pulling out those different aspects of that nomenclature and explain it um, to the audience as as succinctly as possible, distilling down those most the the the, the salient points the points so they can digest that that singular moment then you've done your job. If you add to the confusion or you start bringing in you know, political factors or start compiling and compounding the issue on air, that's, that's not additive. That becomes detractive. So mm. you try to make sure that everything you say in that moment is, is additive to the resolution of that immediate crisis. Yeah. I, I think that's important to keep in mind because there are some and we should be clear here, we've left it assumed, but you you are a CNN analyst, and that's where you offer your information and, and insight. Um, some, some outlets are not as careful. Uh, that is, they will have people on who do a lot of speculation as a tragedy is unfolding about things like motives. Um, and that's sometimes that speculation is right, but more often than not, it is, it is wrong and it's necessarily incomplete. Um, you personally don't do that well, without judging CNN as a network, but broadening it out. Let me ask you about kind of the the implication of that, which is 24-7 news has, has space to fill. And when there's a tragedy that often jumps above other longstanding concerns, whether it's a, a war in Ukraine or whether it's uh, political tension over Supreme Court rulings and other things. But does that sensationalize it? Do you find that you worry, again, not necessarily about your network, but in the overall media environment we're in now, that as opposed to when we grew up, when there was much more limited engagement, now there is almost an inherent tendency to uh, over magnify some aspects of a tragedy and to, to sensationalize it in a way that causes more stress and anxiety than needs to be the case? Well, let me try to break that down a little bit differently. I think that news outlets broadly are are just responding to the new domain that they operate in. And what I mean by that is the digital domain today 
moves at lightning speed. So information flows are almost instantaneous. And because you have this instantaneous information flow, so you know, our, our, our rocket lands in the middle of uh, you know, Kiev earlier today. I mean, we had a notification two or three minutes later of that disaster. And now everybody on social media is reporting about it, commenting on it, well before traditional news outlets even can get a jump on it. So when they do get that jump on the story and they go to air, they have to fill it with a void that social media may not be picking up. So yes, there's a there's a sense of sensationalism that that can be in the moment. I don't think it's intentional. I think it's trying to keep pace with what is going on by their audience. Who's consuming this information and the speed by which they're consuming it is is constantly a challenge for uh for media outlets. And mm. I, I think it's just a it's a different style of reporting that you know has really changed even in the last couple of years. Um, the availability of technology, working remotely, sharing video now because you can compress that video uh, on social media so easily. I can now get almost near real time video of an incident that's going on. And that's that's a challenge for for you know, producers who are sitting in the newsroom saying, how do I tell this story when mm -hmm. 80% of it's already been told? Mm -hmm. So they have to work backwards a little bit to verify what's already out there to yeah. then get into, okay, how do we, how do we report this? Do you find yourself probably not engaging directly with the producers on that because you're about to go on the live hit, but in your mind, do you find yourself kind of playing the same role, which is deciding what you can comment on when you have seen just one image of an incident. Uh, you know, how do you put, in a sense, the brakes on yourself? Because you've got a lot of experience, which we'll get to in a few minutes. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of experience that gives you judgment about, oh, I've seen this scenario before. Here are the likely parameters. On the other hand, you realize you're just seeing one image before you go on air and and you have a limit to what you can say. How do you balance that? It's it, it is a challenge. And again, the speed by which these incidents are happening, in the speed to market, right? The the speed by which a story, you know, an incident occurs, a story develops, and you go to air, can be less than a minute. And I'll give a good example. Uh, you know, a couple months ago, there was a shooting in New York City on the subway in Brooklyn. Right. And it happened just at the tail end of, of rush hour in the morning. And I was, you know, a very rare day, I was actually sitting at my desk in, in the office. And I happened to turn on the television. <laughs> just as the television was turning on, it was CNN. And I look up and it's the, the two of the morning anchors are sitting there. And they're just talking about a story. Then I see breaking news. Mm -hmm. Shooting in New York. And I stand up. So this is now we're maybe 10 seconds into the breaking news coverage starting. My phone rings and it's the newsroom and they say, we're putting you on the air right now. <laughs> and I say, OK. And David, I know you've, you've been in these situations before that you, know, you have a producer that's trying to do manage 7000 things. And you say, OK, the next thing I hear is we're now bringing in. Jonathan Wacker, a law enforcement analyst for CNN. You don't even know what I, you're going to be asked. Right. I know it's a, so all I know, it's a shooting mm -hmm. and it's in it's in New York City. Mm. I don't know. I didn't know it was on a subway. Did, didn't know any 
of the, the, the any context whatsoever. And Jim Scudo, who I, I, I really admire from seeing it, he just he ha- he throws that toss up. Yeah. Jonathan, how do you assess the situation right now? <laughs> well, thanks, Jim, because I'm looking at you on television trying to figure out what this moment is. Yeah. But I knew it was a shooting. So yeah. what does that mean? All right. A shooting in New York City has a standard protocol by the mm-hmm. NYPD. It has a standard protocol by EMS in the fire department that they've practiced on time and time again. So as you start explaining to the public what the the, the first responders are doing in that immediate moment, then you get more information. Okay, subway, got it. MTA, closures. I can start going through all of those protocols. You're trying to, again, reassure the public that while there's this, this clear and present danger of not only the shooting just occurred, but there isn't, they didn't capture the shooter. What, what is law enforcement doing? What are the first responders doing? How is the, the mayor and public officials, how are they you know, trying to protect the city from a, a clear and present danger? And that's what you have to do very quickly on the, on the fly. Yeah. So even when it appears chaotic, and it is because you don't have a lot of the details, you're, you are imposing that order. You're saying there are protocols being followed. Here is what they're doing. You're not going to see most of it, but this is what's happening behind the scenes. Therefore, we are likely to see this in the next five minutes and this in the next five hours and this in the next five days. Don't confuse those. Exactly. And what I try to do is provide analysis not opinion, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, this is bad. And I, I don't want this to be John Wackrow's opinion of a situation. I want to give those facts immediately based upon you know, historical context, my training, my my experience, tactics that I've deployed in the past, mm-hmm. known tactics of like the NYPD. Mm-hmm. Stay as factual as possible to that, to that incident. Right. Well, that does go back to your experience. So l- let's get into that. I really wanted to talk to you a lot in the context of what's been happening in recent weeks and months, uh, perhaps growing over the past several years of the increasing threat of no kidding political violence in this country of the type that we haven't seen since maybe the weather underground of some 50 years ago. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about your experience and how it does relate to everything from personal security to the way institutions can learn from each other um, in the security realm. So, so let's talk about your experience. You bring most of your experience on this, not just from your recent work in consulting in various risk contexts, but from your career in the Secret Service. Um, talk about that. Why did you join the Secret Service and, and how did you... How did you make your way there? So my, my pathway to the Secret Service was, I, I think, really unique. It's not a it's, it's not a fairy tale story or something that I had thought of for for years. It it really came out of wholly understanding what the women and men of the Secret Service were doing day in and day out. And I'll take a step back into the late nineties. I was working in the hospitality industry in New York City. Back when you were a young man, right? A young man, very yeah. young man. Um, <laughs> and I had the opportunity, to, you know, I was in sales, and I actually sold government accounts, hotel rooms to, uh, you know, political figures, to any, any type of government employee. And what we saw was, you know, between 97 and 2000, you had... Uh, the Clintons leaving office, moving to New uh, to New York, 
So Chappaqua, very close proximity to New York City. So we ended up having a lot of the White House staff stay at one of my properties. We had the Secret Service stay at my properties. We had White House Communications stay at my properties. Then you had Al Gore, who was running for president at the time, have his daughter living in New York and mm-hmm. just having his first grandchild. Yeah. So at any moment in time, I had the president or vice president, first lady or second lady staying in my hotel. So I was surrounded for almost 24 months by Secret Service agents, White House officials, military all the time. So I got this different viewpoint. I didn't get the brochure viewpoint. I got the viewpoint of those officers and agents standing in a hallway, standing in a stairwell for 12 hours on end on the holiday weekends at night. And I started asking myself, like, why would anybody do this job? (laughs) Yeah, that's an odd recruitment pitch right there. Yeah. (laughs) But then I got to talking to the different uh, individuals, supervisors, agents, local agents out of the New York field office, people that were on the detail. And I, again, I heard this commonality of why they're doing it. They're not doing it for themselves. They were doing it for something greater. And they had a shared fate amongst all of them as they worked. They were mission-driven. They, they were not going to accept failure on anything. Um, no matter how difficult the moment was, they were all very focused on how to provide that protection. I saw that esprit de corps amongst the officers and agents alike. And all of a sudden I said, I, I want to be that. I want to do that. I wonder if I could do it. Because um, I just saw how highly trained and how highly competent and smart and you know, intellectually curious, every single one of them were. And I said, I, I wonder if I could actually become an agent. Uh, but I always, I, I always pushed it off to the side. It was something that all of a sudden became in my head, but I, I, I wasn't focused on it until um, there was a gentleman who's the head of the uh, vice president's detail at the time, William Pickle. Mm-hmm. He came up to me and said, Hey, you're, you're with us constantly. You're, you know, and are friends with everybody here and people on my detail. And you seem to have a real interest in doing this work, not <laughs> only just from the protection side, but also from the investigative side. And you're you're asking a hundred questions. There's two ways to take that, John. One yeah. way is, wow, you're really interested in this. Would you want to be part of this mission? <laughs> the other one is, what's wrong with you, stalker? Are yeah. you a threat yeah. to our to our protectees? Well, Thankfully, it was the former, right? <laughs> Otherwise, I would have been in protective custody. Um, and he ended up handing me an envelope. And uh, it was, uh, you know, a bunch of forms that, David, you're probably familiar with that, uh, you know, the uh, SF-86 form, uh, you know, the the, uh, the standard form for, to try to obtain a uh, national security uh, clearance. Mm-hmm. And so I took a look at that and I said, okay. Then there was the Secret Service application inside of that. I said, okay. I looked at it and this was circa 98, uh, maybe 99. And it said, all answers must be typed on a typewriter. I said, well, that? well, this was a good run. I really don't need to be in the Secret Service. I thought to myself, <laughs> like, it's just too typing. hard to find a typewriter. I just so I'll give up find on a, a typewriter. Career. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but I, I ended up getting the typewriter. I did it. 
Um, never thinking like through all the phases that I'd, I'd be able to join this group of women and men that I really held in, in high regard. I really had a lot of respect for the work that they did. And, you know, listen, I'm, I'm humbled every single day to, to say that I was part of that group, part of the, the group that I saw I held to such a high standard. They held themselves to that standard. Um, I, I I just look back at it very fondly every second that I was in that agency. Uh, but it comes down to that, that, that first moment of understanding what the job was about mm -hmm. and then really wanting it. Yeah. Yeah. And you understood what the job was about at a very tactical level in a mm -hmm. very precise situation, which is hotel security for a protectee um, who is not a head of state, although maybe you did have heads of state visit as part of UNGA. I know they go out in hotels yeah. pretty far for the annual General Assembly meetings when you have, what, about 8 billion protectees come into mm -hmm. to New York, but still a very precise situation. You could not have known the infinitely wider nature of the job at that point. You obviously discovered that upon uh, interviewing and then much more so upon joining and going through training without giving away anything that would jeopardize the the security benefits of that training. Talk us through that process. You know, how much of it was standard, you know, Fletzy type stuff of law enforcement? How much of it was learning the lessons of previous presidential assassinations and other threat scenarios to protectees? What was the balance of that training? Well, the balance was actually, uh, there's, Training is really held in, in two parts. The uh, Secret Service officers and agents go through two separate and distinct academies. The first academy is what you had just referenced. It's the Federal Law Enforcement uh, Training Center, uh, typically held down in Glencoe, Georgia. And that is a, a common baseline academy that uh, just about all in federal law enforcement outside of like the FBI go through. Uh, to have a, a common you know, uh, baseline of, of information on how to become an officer, how to become an agent, uh, a GS-1811 or 1801, whatever series classification you're going for, it's that standard uh, you know, uh, baseline academy. So you go through that, and that's where you learn you know, everything from handcuffing to arrest procedures to law, uh, everything that that it takes to become an officer and agent, you learn there. Once you graduate the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, a majority of the, the graduates go directly into the field. They get their badge at graduation. They go back to their, um, their, their different organizations and their law enforcement officials, not the Secret Service. We get to go through another academy. So we get to go through uh, really the Secret Service Academy uh, which is held, uh, the academy is the, um, the Raleigh Training Center in Bellsville, Maryland. And that's where you learn the tradecraft of actually being a Secret Service agent or officer. You learn about the core uh, investigative responsibilities. So you learn about uh, credit card fraud, bank fraud, all cr crimes against the treasury. You learn how to make counterfeit currency, how to detect you know, genuine from fake uh uh, Federal Reserve notes. Let me press pause right there, John, because you are mm -hmm. right there going to throw some listeners for a curve because sure. Secret Service in the public imagination is Kevin Costner, former Secret Service mm -hmm. protective agent in the bodyguard or Clint Eastwood in the line of fire 
Um, you're talking about, or the films of John F. Kennedy, you're, you're talking about protecting the president and perhaps others. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about counterfeit currency. Sure. Um, you're going to have to explain that history a bit <laughs> before you go on. Absolutely. So the Secret Service was first and foremost uh, formed as an investigative uh, entity formed to combat counterfeit currency. It wasn't until later on in the, in the agency's history that they started doing your know, protective assignments, protecting presidential candidates, the president of the United States, and it's, it's expanded since then. But today, the Secret Service is the only federal law enforcement entity with a dual mission. They have a protective mission, which is exactly what you uh, had described. It is the women and men, dark sunglasses, dark suit, earpiece, stoic looking that you see surrounding protectees on, on the television all the time. The side that most people don't understand is that we have a, uh, an investigative mission. And that investigative mission today does include financial crimes, so any crimes against the Treasury, also electronic crimes, uh, so electronic fraud that's, that's occurring every single day. That's now a core component uh, and an emerging component of the Secret Service. So the dual, uh, the dual mission, the investigative and the protective, is always a challenge for Secret Service agents because you have to have a balance. You know, it's very difficult to work a very complex financial fraud case and do protection uh, because you have to prioritize one over the other. Somehow. Right, right. Uh, protection always wins, by the way, right. but... Uh, it's it's hard to do that balance, but that's what makes the job so interesting. And I go back to listening to those those agents in the stairwell prior to me ever becoming an agent and listening to their interests. Like they'd be standing in a stairwell talking about these investigative cases that they were working. Good security. They'd talk about. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but it, it to me, it was like, wait a second. This isn't just a single scope job. Mm -hmm. This is a real like every single day is really interesting. And, and it wasn't until I had passed through the academies that that I, I started to live and breathe that. But so hopefully that answers the the, the why I was talking about the, the counterfeit sure. in terms of tradecraft. But tradecraft also is on the protective side. There is right. a protective model that mm -hmm. Secret Service agents uh, train on. And, you know, that takes a lot of time. It's a lot of repetition. It's a lot of very coordinated movements in terms of how do we execute on, on our mission. And as I talked about a little bit earlier about my commentary on CNN about like preparedness, the left of boom preparedness allows me to yeah. be able to respond in kind to a, an incident on the air. That's the Secret Service model. They actually train and train and train for every eventuality and prepare for, you know, Everything that could happen in terms of uh, a protective construct, you know, whether it's a tactical, medical, or relocation uh, scenario, constantly train on that. And there's a very, uh, very stringent model that the Secret Service follows in terms of not not being able just to react to something, but proactively mitigate threats and vulnerabilities through an right. advanced process. So yeah. that second academy is jam-packed. It's six months. It probably should be a year to really be able to garner all of the knowledge that you need to be able to go directly into the field. But mm -hmm. um, it is it, it is where the tradecraft is learned. And, and 
the the great thing about the Secret Service is that training doesn't end on the day that you graduate. Yeah. It really continues through your entire career. Now, you you told me several years ago, we, we talked at length about this for my second book about how presidents mm -hmm. leave office. And the most awkward chapter to write was that presidents sometimes leave office by violent means. And mm -hmm. it's not to not to laud that, not to recommend that, but simply to note that it has happened. And you said that all of the growth around the protection of the president, all of the policies and procedures are born out of blood. That is the experiences that the Secret Service directly has had, often some of the biggest growths in procedures, policies, uh, ways of investigating, but ways of protecting in advance are from tragedies. They're, they're mm -hmm. from the experiences of presidents mostly, but other detailees, other protectees, who have actually shed blood as a result of some failure, which was not anticipated correctly. Is that a part of that initial six months training? Or is that something mm -hmm. that's done in more advanced studies to kind of build those lessons of history in? Everything is a building block. It starts in the academy. Start understanding why you know, why is the president in a ballistic vehicle? Why isn't the president in, you know, an open air car? Well, you go back to the Kennedy administration, learned a very tragic lesson there. Again, that's one of those elements that, yeah. uh, a tactic that was, you know, born out of blood. We're never mm -hmm. going to put the president in an open air vehicle again, where they are susceptible to that, uh, that long range threat. Mm -hmm. If we can't control the entire 360 degree environment around them. So, right. You know, we look at things, you learn that as a baseline, like we deploy uh, a very specific protective methodology. Mm -hmm. You have to understand where did that methodology come from? Why are we doing it? Because when you take it and apply it to the streets of Washington, D.C., the streets of Seattle or some foreign location that the president is going to, you have to understand and wholly appreciate why we're applying this model to to be successful, right? We want to manipulate the environment. We want to make sure that we always have the advantage. We, meaning the Secret Service, the protective model, always has the, the advantage over any type of adversary. And it, it's an adversary we don't know how they're going to attack us. So mm -hmm. we have to think about every single type of attack that, that could be launched on the site and put those control measures into place. Mm -hmm. But again, it all comes back to the history, understanding why we don't have the press or the public close to the president. Why? Well, you could have a squeaky from issue. Why yeah. do you see the, the agents constantly holding the doors of the limousine open? Why? Because we learned a lot of lessons from uh, you know, uh, President Ford when he was shot. Mm -hmm. Every single tactic that we deploy today has a history. There's a lineage back to why are we doing this? Um, and we're constantly getting better, right? You can either sit back and wallow in a mistake or an issue that had happened in the past, or you can get better from it. And I think that's what makes the Secret Service so great is that they're constantly trying to improve. And one of a former supervisor said to me, he used this phrase that said, complacency kills. Hmm. And it has stuck with me forever. And he said, like, never allow complacency to enter into your protective model. Always question everything. Even if we go to the same site time and time again, we know the people that are there, We the, the, the uh, blueprint of the building hasn't changed. 
Never take anything for granted. Assume nothing. Go in like it's a new site. Relearn everything because guaranteed you'll go in and see something you've never seen before. Mm-hmm. You know, threats will take the path of least resistance and they'll keep pressure testing sites and localities to find that least resistance. You have to make sure that you find it first and mitigate it so a threat doesn't exploit that vulnerability. Yeah, it's it's really interesting looking at it uh, across the long, the long span of time, because you're right. You can see that the kinds of transportation used now weren't true for Kennedy, for example, mm-hmm. right? You, d- you don't see a lot of open air when you do. It's very rare when Jimmy Carter gets out and starts walking on the parade route. You're like, Oh crap. You know, that's <laughs> that we we've learned that we don't want to have visibility from, from all angles. Um, but sometimes they take some time. So mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Abraham Lincoln in 1865 shot in the back of a head with uh, an unguarded door. Now, the Secret Service was not doing protection at the time. So it's not a lesson the Secret Service learned, except you learned about that when you were going through training. Mm -hmm. But you go, what, 15 years, 16 years later, and James Garfield is shot walking into the railroad station with the Secretary of State uh, arm in arm. And then, what, about 20 years later, McKinley is shot and, and killed at the Pan-American exposition in in Buffalo when people just come up and shoot him. So three presidents assassinated before the Secret Service actually takes over protection for a president. So there's definitely a learning curve on the part of the entire U.S. government there, if not the Secret Service, right? Correct. Well, the learning curve there should have been a little bit faster, but um, uh, it it wasn't. But you have to understand, like those those attacks are you know studied and reviewed mm-hmm. constantly. Uh, I mean, through my entire career, I we probably looked at the Lincoln assassination in depth like six or seven times. Like, mm-hmm. how did it happen? Like, where were the where were their failures? Because there was there was some notional security at the at, at the theater, but like what was the chain of events that happened right. beforehand? What mm-hmm. happened afterwards? Because yeah, I think you know, just because you have an attack doesn't mean that you know, the protectee is is getting killed instantaneously. Yeah. They could be wounded. So how do you, uh, you know, what what are those next steps that you do to provide the medical care? And we, we look all the way back at every single instance where a protectee ever got hurt. Um, mm-hmm. Did we do the right thing there? So you're constantly evolving and refining your your protective model and how or what control measures you're putting into place, and then what reactionary measures do you need to have ready should something occur? Right. Yeah, the open the open air car still <laughs> surprises me because Franklin Roosevelt was attacked uh, sitting in, in the back of an open car with Mayor Cermak from Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was still, what, almost 30 years, and Kennedy is shot in an open car. Mm-hmm. Um, now, part of that's because the personality of the presidents. Um, protectees don't always want to do the safest thing. They want to do the thing because they're politicians first and targets second. They want to do the thing that connects them to the people, whether that's ride in an open air so you can wave and be seen, or whether that's jump out of the car and walk along Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, so there's always going to be that tension. But it's got to feel funny looking at those historical stories, the things, anything more than 50 years ago seems like some kind of ancient age. And it's not just because of the technology of weapons and tactics. It's it's because of the the feeling of openness around the presidency with 
people coming into the White House to appeal personally to the president for a job. Um, the President Truman walking down the streets of Washington, D.C., and anybody could come up and talk to him versus now. It, it almost seems like a different world. It, it seems like a different world. Let's go back to the Kennedy um, assassination for just one moment. The, those those agents at the time, they were thinking of the threat environment in a in a more micro sense, in like that immediate uh, area surrounding the the president and protectee. Right. Right. They were not thinking of they didn't calculate the probability of a long range mm-hmm. shot yeah. um, coming beyond their like in an area that they can't mitigate. Like that wasn't in their their risk assessment. Uh, because they were playing to the environment, like the vehicle is moving fast, or, you know, no one's going to be able to take that shot. Wait, like that—that's just not 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 feasible. They didn't know what they didn't know at the time. Now they know, yeah. and I think that you have to think about like that's what makes the job so challenging today is that agents and officers over-index on the history in learning about like what had happened, which now you know necessitates you to go through every single type of eventuality mm-hmm. when you're building a protective structure for a location that the president or vice president may go to. I mean, you're thinking if you're going to any place on the West Coast, there are earthquake plans that need to yep. be put into place. There's just things that agents even 15, 20 years ago weren't even thinking. Thinking about um, the attack of drones today, uh, electronic uh, you know, electronic countermeasures that maybe try to you know, try to use against the, um, you know, uh, against communications. So there's a lot of things that now, like you know, you can anticipate, but mm-hmm. what don't you know? So that that's what makes the job so challenging today, is that these threat factors that that could impact you yeah. are 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 so numerous, right? It's just a lot to to try to be able to handle and, and, and execute on. It is. And it over time creates one hell of a checklist. I mean, I remember dating myself going back more than 20 years when I was overseas, uh, helping out in an embassy and there was a, um, former president visiting. And of course the advanced team comes out, probably not the only one, but the advanced team comes out and is going through literally minute by minute, and literally inch by inch, the movements and the positions uh, of the former president for various uh, public and semi-public appearances and activities. And the one that sticks with me, which is, is, is no secret, there's nothing being given away here, but the one that just sticks in my mind is for a semi-public event, which would have some screening of visitors, and they were all friendly, very senior members of government and things. There was a uh, a riser. There was like a, a, a podium for people to sit on and, and make small speeches from, but there were seats for people when they weren't speaking. And I remember uh, one of your colleagues pulling me aside because I was just the closest person physically um, and pointing at the chair and saying, you know, that chair needs to be forward a few inches. I said, what, 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 why? He said, well, it's, it's too close to the back of the, of the riser. Um, I said, well, actually it's, it's not, it's, it's not close to the back of the riser. And he just looked at me with a look with all knowing confidence and said, move it forward. It's too close to the back of the riser. 
and put tape where it's supposed to be in case someone else comes along. And that, that didn't sound to me. And in this case, it was a, it was a man, but this didn't sound to me like a man who was making a snap judgment. This sounded to me like a man who was going through a 384 point checklist. And one of those was make damn sure that your protectee doesn't slip off the back of a riser for God's sakes. You're worried about snipers. You're worried about air routes. You're worried about evacuation plans, but you really don't want your person to slip and fall on something obvious. And you really don't want your person to sit down and have the chair go out from under him or her. Um, and that really quickly gave me the lesson that there are a whole lot of incidents that must have happened, many of which didn't reach public knowledge, but led to this hundreds long checklist of all the things that absolutely must be done in every scenario to have, to, to prevent an avoidable mistake. Well, it's an avoidable mistake, but it's, you know, when you think about the way you know, protectors need to look at their protectees, you're, you're protecting them from physical harm, first and foremost, but you're also protecting them from embarrassment, right? Like, you know, right, like right. you're spending so much time at that, at that site, you, and you've been to so many events that are almost cookie cutter of, you know, what can go wrong. And, you know, there are other things with, you know, I've been in arguments with um, advanced staff members where they didn't want railings, hand railings on like three steps. Right on. Yeah. And like, it doesn't look good. The optic is horrible. The political team, the media team hates it, right? Everyone hates it. It says, okay, but this person, you know, is going to run out of, especially if it's a campaign stuff, they're going to run out, they're waving to the crowd. They have no idea where that first step is, but they know where that railing is. Yeah. So they're always going to index to the railing so they can take that first step up and jump onto the crowd, up onto the, the dais and start waving and doing their political stuff. Yeah. We know that because we've also seen what happens when that railing isn't there mm-hmm. and they make a misstep or they stumble onto stage. That doesn't matter what that person says for the next 45 minutes press are already focused on you know obama stumbles (laughs) like in in iowa and it's like wait a second that's you know he stumbled on stage you you forgot the rest of the sentence but it's you would protect them from embarrassment let's talk about a couple of specific examples things that happened within recent memory of you starting that were certainly a part of training and perhaps lessons being more strongly learned at the time you started because they were so recent one is the near assassination of Ronald Reagan in 1981. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the main lesson regarding uh, events and egress and access that came from the Reagan assassination that by the time you came on board, were just a part of standard procedure for making sure that people were not as vulnerable as he was that day? Well, so a couple things that you know, had occurred on that day that again goes back to that uh, the theory of policies and procedures born out of blood. Um, one, we had the crowd too close. So his arrival and departure point was way too close. Um, we were allowing public to come way too close to that arrival departure point. Ever since that day, all arrivals and departures by the president are done out of sight of the public. So that's, you'll see all the time tents set up in, uh, or, you know, preferably go underground or into garages where we control that entire 360 degrees. You don't know what's going on inside that tent or what's going on, uh, underground. So that is something that, uh, you know, had 
had come into play. But you have to take a step back and talk about like what was something that was successful but was born out of blood from earlier. And you look at the way that the Secret Service agents reacted to the sound of gunfire. Right. And when you watch the video there, you will see police officers and others shrinking down because that's their training. What did you see the Secret Service agents do? They got big. They stood up. Mm -hmm. They they became that that human shield, not even understanding where the gunfire may have been coming from. But they just got big to protect the Mm -hmm. uh, protect the uh, the president. Right. Other things that were very successful in the the door was open. Mm-hmm. Again, I talked about that before with Ford. Hard to they throw the president that, in if the door is closed. Exactly. In in this instance, seconds counted. They 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 they, they the seconds mattered to the survivability of the president. Um. So you again, there were lessons that were learned on that day that now are just part of that 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 standard nomenclature for advanced sites. Um, but there were a lot of successes that were then codified into, you know what, we right. made the right call by implementing this, uh, learning and, and understanding the the routes to the hospital, who makes that call on yeah. going to the hospital? Mm-hmm. Um, like, why is that? Why is that done? Well, it's done because agents now have a a significant level of medical training. Mm-hmm. Everybody does as a baseline. It's not just first aid. You become first responders. You understand. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, you know, advanced life support, you know how critical the medical aspect of the job is. So a lot of things were were net new. We learned a lot of net new lessons in, in 81, but we also reaffirmed some of the policies that were just implemented a few years beforehand. <laughs> That's funny. You, as you said that about the, the rising up and the medical preparation beyond just pure first aid, I, I was recalling a few years ago, I was at a an event, a conference, and a a colleague of mine, she was there with her husband, who was an mm-hmm. active Secret Service protective agent and didn't advertise the fact, but it became clear and we ended up chatting about it quite a bit. And at one point during the event, it's a cocktail hour atmosphere mm-hmm. and people are standing around and all this. And all of a sudden, probably about 40 feet away, maybe 35, 40 feet away, someone starts choking and it's not the polite <laughs> cough that happens. Um, I mean, it's a, a gagging, you know, a strenuous cough mm-hmm. uh, as if there's a, a serious choking incident. And I just remember standing there, maybe it's because he was in my light of sight to the incident, but I remember seeing him immediately, you know, shoulders went higher and you could see him almost start to move towards it, that, that, that he was looking there. And I think his eyes, and I'm not sure this was mm-hmm. conscious, but I, his eyes were almost assessing the situation do I need to provide medical aid immediately to this person? And he, he didn't, he held back and mm-hmm. sure enough, the coughing ended, but just that few seconds stuck with me as here's someone who is poised to, to jump on a potential threat instead of stand there looking around at other people. Hey, what do we do? Is, is this person, is this person choking? Does anyone know the Heimlich maneuver? This person was ready to get there as soon as there was a certain threshold of threat. And it sounds to me like that the Reagan incident really sealed that when it came to making a a flash decision about do we need to get to an advanced medical facility like a hospital instead of just doing something ourselves? Correct. And it, it, again, we look back in agents from the academy all the way through their career, 
look back in history to things that were successful, like what worked. Um, and we train on that. We train on what was successful. We understand, you know, listen, our, the, the protective, uh, you know, missteps and failures that had occurred were not intentional, but they happen. You have to get better from them. You have to learn from them, move forward. And that's how an organization evolves. If you don't do that, if you're not constantly doing the after action review of, of every aspect of, of your operation, then you become stagnant. You will never be able to keep pace with a constantly changing threat environment. Mm -hmm. uh, you'll always lag. You will always lag. In the Secret Service, thankfully, they take that proactive step to constantly ask themselves, how do we get better? How do we get better on protection? How do we get better on investigations? Right. Um, what do we need to do to, to match the, this new and evolving threat environment? Let me jump forward to something that would not have come up in your training because this would have come <laughs> up when you were actually on the job working personal protection in the <laughs> Obama White House. Um, you had a couple of incidents during the administration there that also thankfully did not lead to a worst case scenario, but they, they, they were considered failures at the time and did lead to some changed methodology. One is, and I'm not sure if you were there for this one, but in 2011, when the shots actually hit the White House windows, uh, as I recall, the president and first lady were not there, but um, at least one daughter was there. And it was not, in fact, known for sure at the time that the shots did hit the window and the plaster around the window. Um, you've described this and others as a scarring experience when it comes to the immediate reaction of the reporting and supervisory chain and everything else. But walk through that incident, if you will, and tell us kind of what the lesson is in terms of protection. Well, I mean, first and foremost, like with that incident, there was a there was a real lack of awareness that there was even an incident. Um, That's an important first some, step, isn't it? Yeah. You have to identify that there's a problem to be able to solve for it um, or react to it. And I think that is where the initial breakdown had come into play, where you had individuals and in this situation is really complex and it, it, it gets drawn out over months. But the initial incident distills down to um, officers who were at the White House heard rounds over their head. So they called out shots fired. Right call to make, by the way. The supervisors that were on duty who were not there discounted it as a a, a different type of noise mm -hmm. not gunfire mm. don't worry about it mm. well that that was bad and that delayed the response it delayed the response to the the defensive forces that were at the white house but also it, it delayed the response of the mutual law enforcement partners in washington dc namely Metro PD, Park Police, from also immediately responding. Now, the suspect was eventually caught. The uh, And it from then on, our tactics, again, changed at the White House forever. Um, but who would have thought that randomly someone would drive you know, down Constitution and just fire a you know, semi-automatic rifle at at the White House. It right. wasn't some in, in the heart of DC. It didn't seem likely, but you know, it's 
it's one of those things where you can explain away mm -hmm. almost anything as random gunfire from an unrelated incident nearby to uh, a backfire of a, of a vehicle because that was common enough in the area. But when you have an agent reporting shots fired, it's disturbing to think that any system could actually reject that and not respond to it as an immediate yeah. threat. And I think what the, the worst part of it was as the service was trying to figure out what was going on, you know, how do we how do we message this internally? And it was it was a difficult moment. There was a lot of things going on for the service. What we failed to remember was that the parents of these two young women who were at the White House at the time, we didn't notify them. They found out Oof. through other means. Oh. Now, I'm, and I use the words parents, <laughs> not first lady, <clears throat> not president of the United States. Right. Uh, because as a parent myself, mm -hmm. I know that if my child's life was ever in danger, yeah. how I would react. I'm sure you feel the same way. And because you worked closely with the first lady, you know that her reaction, which came afterwards, which was, um, I don't know, volcanic might be right, was... Yeah. As a parent, it had nothing to do with the fact she was first lady. Exactly. So, you know, there were the were the girls ever in danger? No. You know, there's there's multiple levels of protection at the White House, um, it, but that didn't matter, right? Because the mom wasn't notified, and yeah, there there were some there were some supervisors that you know got eviscerated in. They tried to explain what happened. A, a, a mother really doesn't want to hear hear that. They want to know yeah. in the moment, like what what are we doing to better protect my kids? Right. Um, right. Not 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 the best moment, but this again, you have to take mm -hmm. that situation. Secret Service took its lumps, but then applied almost instantaneously a change in the protective methodology around mm -hmm. the White House. Our area of responsibility bumped out significantly mm -hmm. and it, it we weren't asking for uh you know we weren't asking permission to bump that perimeter out we just did it out of necessity and it holds true today mm -hmm. you talk about multiple layers of security there and that's why it's even more disturbing that just three years later you had a different incident that questioned that because without going into the technology and the the different systems it is safe to assume as an outside analyst that there are a variety of uh, technological and non-technological measures of uh, perimeter security, multiple perimeter security around a place like the, the White House. And yet in 2014, a knife wielder found his way not only onto the grounds per, beyond some of those means, but literally inside the building. Um, that's a slap across the face. Thankfully, there was no, you know, slap across the face with a knife. I'm not being direct. I'm saying as an institution, that's really hard when you have, you have taken such pride in the lessons learned from previous, uh, security incidents to suddenly have someone with a knife who gets in the door and is inside the building. Yeah, that's, that, that's about as bad as it gets, right? It, it's like, it, that's hard to even explain. Um, but you have to look at how did the, and there's no excuse for that, that happening, right? There's no, it should never have happened full stop, but it did. So you have to look back at how, 
what were what were the precipitating events that that led to that moment? And it actually started almost a year beforehand when they, because of manpower constraints, they had to reallocate how personnel on the North Lawn has to shift to the South Lawn when there's a departure of the president. Sure. And sure. you know, just prior to this this individual jumping over the fence, right? There'd been a movement, there, right? There had been a movement. The president left via the South grounds. And all of the focus was back to where the president was and securing that that route of the helicopter out. It left the north grounds, I don't want to say fully vulnerable, but vulnerable, not as protected as it should be as if the president was in residence. Um, That allowed the individual to, one, get over the fence and close so much distance between the fence line and the... um, and the, uh, the the main entrance to the North Portico because there wasn't those, the, the, the officers and agents weren't on the North grounds as they normally were. And more importantly, the counter snipers on the roof had been set up for the, the departure off the South ground. So mm-hmm. that's a manpower issue. That was a decision that was made a long time beforehand, but then we saw the impact, the consequence of that decision. So that was, one one major issue. The second major issue is just human failure. Like as you went through all of those layers of defense, that last layer of defense is that officer at the door. You do whatever mm-hmm. you have to do to stop that that threat from from entering that, that because residence. it happened it happened to have been a knife, but mm-hmm. it easily could have been an explosive device. Could have been an explosive device. It could have been a myriad of things. Um but all you know is you have an inbound threat coming in. That individual, it, it was vapor lock. They they didn't take the right actions. They didn't do the right thing to protect that house. Now, again, looking backwards, what what the embarrassing moment, first of all, but what did the Secret Service do? They they took their lumps, they understood what was going on, what the problems were, and they rectified it. They made sure that that, that that's not going to happen again, right? And it's everything from raising the level of fence. It took way too long, but they finally have raised the level of the fence. They've put you know, different electronic means uh, in terms of mitigation throughout the North Lawn and into the building itself. They're still heavily reliant upon uh, human capabilities, but it's also a matter of process and technology that's also aiding the protective model throughout the White House. So right. it, it, it changed. So Again, they got better from it, not not worse. They didn't they didn't just say, "Hey, it wasn't our fault," and moved on. They actually did look at how, how do we how do we change the way that we operate to get better. Right. And one of, one of the actual assets in this protective process over a long period of time has been the apolitical nature of the Secret Service. Um, mm-hmm. It is not a partisan Praetorian Guard. Um, the the oath is not to the person uh, based on political means. It is it is an oath to protecting the Constitution and the constitutional role of the president or the other protectee within it. So one of the threats to the Secret Service mission is actually politicization or the appearance of politicization. And in my experience, the strongest uh, danger to this actually came during the last administration when you had things like a detail leader, you know, Tony Amato, who is promoted to deputy chief of staff, a political appointee position, um, and then doing policy matters. And then things, of course, like the incident 
um, what, June 1st, I think it was, 2020, when the, the Secret Service supported the U.S. Park Police in clearing out Lafayette Park of protesters for the president could have a photo op uh, up the street a bit. Um, without getting specific as to you know some of the decisions made within the, the leadership of the Secret Service, do you fear that there's a slippery slope there that even allowing the appearance of politicization gets in the way of that mission, which requires the perception of pure objectivity unrelated to partisan motives? Yes, because it goes to the motto, uh, Secret Service is worthy of trust and confidence. Right? In the moment that that trust and or confidence is, is tainted in any way, it becomes very difficult for officers and agents to execute on their job. But what I look at is that I've thought a lot about Tony Onorato and, and uh, other issues that the, the service was faced with during uh, the, the, the Trump administration. And the, the way that I look at it is that the institution of the Secret Service is strong. Its, its culture runs really deep. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know the, the morals and the ethics of every officer and agent that I know are of the highest regard. Now, we can get into a conversation about missteps around Columbia or things in the past, but I hold, I, I'm willing to debate that at, at any moment in time because the women and men that I worked with held the core responsibility of protection above anything else, above politics. And I worked with Tony as well. So I know him and I can speak to this firsthand that mm-hmm. the they hold executing the protective mission as as a sacred duty. And they're not going to let you know, politics get involved in it as a as a matter of process. Now, does it happen sometimes? Yes, it does. I mean, even even in the micro sense, does it happen at you know protective you know sites for campaign sites? Yeah, it it does, but it's not. It it won't destroy the agency. It won't destroy. It won't harm individuals. Moments in time are going to be looked at. I think Lafayette Park is a is a is a great example of like. What did those officers and first line supervisors know? Did not know. Where were they getting their information from? Um, I, you know, <clears throat> I still think that there's a lot more to come out about that. But the institution of the Secret Service, how they execute on their mission, you know, moves forward. And I think you you have to look at the transition from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. There were a lot of mm-hmm. you know articles in Washington Post or whatever saying like you know. Can the Secret Service be trusted? Like, it, yes, they can. Yep. Those are the same women and men on inauguration day that were there three weeks beforehand with Trump. Mm-hmm. They're still there today. Yep. Some of the supervisors change out, but it, it doesn't change who the Secret Service is as an entity. And I, mm-hmm. I think that the um, the director, who who I don't know at all, I, I do respect this director immensely because I think he's you know had a very challenging go at it, mm-hmm. um, just in terms of like the you know. How, how do you say that you're not political in a political environment? It's very difficult. And I think yeah. that the service has done a good job at, at, at trying to keep it at bay. But it's mm-hmm. there's a lot of things that that impact that. There's social media. And you can point to like, well, this Secret Service employee posted something on Facebook. Okay. Yeah. Or this Secret Service you know, agent's wife or husband is 
you know, posting this stuff online. It becomes very difficult. But I, I hold that the institution of the Secret Service remains apolitical. Mm-hmm. The mission hasn't changed. The mission is always going to be apolitical. You play to the the individual that's in the office and you you literally that your job is to keep them alive, whether they're right. Republican, Democrat, independent, yeah. doesn't matter. Um, so the, the politicalization just makes the job more challenging. It becomes detractive to the mission. Um, but I don't think it's become uh, such an issue that you need any type of you know, systematic change to the way that the service operates. And I have full confidence in mm-hmm. what they're doing today. Um it's been a while, perhaps since the Kennedy assassination, that there's been a, with one exception, which is during the Clinton years, that there's been a dramatic issue involving the Secret Service agents specifically having the duty to testify in a judicial hearing or a, a, some kind of investigation. Um, and that being a dilemma because of the need to be you know, discreet and the Secret Service agents needing to be close enough that they sometimes hear things that they wish they hadn't heard or have to pretend they never heard. So in the Clinton years, it had to do with, do you have to testify? Does an agent have to testify in a case where the the agent may have heard something that is directly relevant to a legal claim? And then most recently, it came up in the January 6th hearings, where the Secret Service that was there with the vice president clearly did not want to talk about where they were, were they even on the Capitol grounds during some of the time there? And then in the hearings, it comes out that, well, in fact, yes, you know, they were in a certain location on the Capitol grounds uh, during a tense time. Talk us through the, the tension there, both in terms of the training you receive and the lessons you learned on the job in terms of how how you deal with, on the one hand, you must be close enough to the protectee that you're going to see and hear things that are beyond official duties and things that maybe you don't want to see. On the other hand, you are subject to the laws of the United States. And if it is determined you must testify as to something, you 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 have to do that, notwithstanding number one. How do you how do you think through that when you're actually on the job beyond crossing your fingers and hoping that nothing happens that you would be called to testify about? Yeah. So I think that uh, it's interesting because I've had people ask me the same thing. And it goes back to the the trust and confidence of the protectee is really how we can execute on our job. Meaning we get very close to them. They have to, and we ask a lot of them. We ask for access into the most private moments of their life. You know, when staff is not around, when White House, you know, support staff or residential staff are not around, the people left standing are the Secret Service agents and members of the family. And you have a front row seat to everything that is good and everything that is bad in their life. Um, Now, I always took it as if a husband and wife protectee are having a real sensitive conversation, I mean, a husband and wife protectee are having a real sensitive conversation conversation in front of you, you've done your job correctly because you've guarded their trust that they can have a very private conversation. And it may be a very tense private conversation, but they can hold it in front of you knowing that you are not going to uh, disclose that that conversation. Mm -hmm. Now, and I think that that's the that's the worries that, you know, the protectees have or that you, you know, are you going to talk about how 
you know, the, the president comes down and eats, you know, breakfast in his underwear every morning. Like that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's salacious stuff. No one, you know, that could, that could sell a, a million books, but that's not going to, like, I don't need to testify about that. Yeah. The other side is if you're compelled to testify because there, you know, there's some sort of crime that mm-hmm. is being investigated. Right. Well, you have a duty as well to the constitution mm-hmm. of the United States. You have a duty as a law enforcement officer or agent to testify in a court of law pursuant to a criminal matter. Right. I think where we've seen pushback in the past is where that testimony would lead to embarrassment. And I look back to the the, the Clinton administration. Mm-hmm. But if you look at what's happening now, every, sec- every Secret Service agent that was uh, asked to testify in front of the January 6th commission have done so without a subpoena. Right. They've done so under their own free will. Yep. They've done so outside of the counsel of, of the Secret Service. Why? Mm-hmm. Because they know that that's the right thing to do. Yeah. Even including testimony by the detail leader, yeah. by uh, President Trump's detail leader, mm-hmm. all of it being additive to the, the, the story and piecing things together, but not embarrassing. Like nothing has, has right. been embarrassing. I think the, the issue with the vice president's detail is the reluctance to even talk about it is because through that conversation, what would you reveal? You'd reveal the safe haven mm-hmm. that's designated at, at the Capitol. Now, guess what? That's not the safe haven anymore. <laughs> Someplace else will, will, will be built out. But that's right. that's why there's a reluctance. It's not to, yeah, it's not to you know, try to hide anything. It's, it's part yeah. of, yeah, it's it's to actually to protect the protective methodology. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, John, we've gotten this far in the conversation without going to the obvious question, right? In the hearings, the Secret Service and its interactions with the president were not quite front and center because there were some other issues involving, you know, weapons and attempted coups. But there was the story uh, told of the president disagreeing so dramatically with his security detail um, that it, that it led to actual potentially, um, assault. And I know enough about secret service history, uh, in part from talking to you from the excellent book, zero fail by Carol Lenig, that there have been cases, certainly Johnson, Kennedy, Nixon of presidents who have disregarded the recommendations of their of their security and the secret service has been frustrated by some uh movements the president would insist upon but i certainly don't recall any cases that were this this direct that were this physical and i'm wondering if you can talk through a little bit of that from your experience just how unusual would this be if the facts bear out and what kind of dynamics between the protectee and the protectors play into this well uh it's interesting because you raise some interesting you know points around Kennedy and Nixon and then Johnson as well around disagreements. But it goes back to what I said earlier that the protective methodology by the Secret Service was was born out of blood. So over time, that that methodology gets refined. It gets sharpened to the point of, um, being able to anticipate those threats and vulnerabilities and mm-hmm. mitigating them before you even have to have those arguments. But as we have seen and heard recently, there, there still is conflict um, when you have individuals, protectees, 
who want to get out into the public domain to you know push some type of message, right? And typically, we see that during um, you know a campaign, whether it's a presidential candidate or even a, a sitting president who's trying to uh, get reelected on a reelection campaign. You see that they have a, a strong desire to have more public availability, be be seen as being more uh, in touch with with everybody. And the way that they do that is they want to get out into the crowd and be with people. Now, that is in complete contrast to what the Secret Service actually wants. They want um, a very uh, stringent security structure uh, set up in concentric circles around that protectee um, 360 degrees in all, you know, uh, all directions. So, there's there's going to always be this push and pull between protectees, uh, in this case, let's just say the president and their staff, and the security apparatus, whether it's the Secret Service, local law enforcement, everything. You have to find that right balance. But at the end of the day, the Secret Service today, unlike with you know Johnson, Kennedy, Nixon, and some of the issues in the past, Secret Service today is has to be. Uh, beholden to a threat-based methodology when it comes to protection. Because as we talked about before, the the, the threat environment today is, is so dynamic, it's so unpredictable, it's violent, that you have to have a standard operating model to go, at, go off of that is not influenced by politics, it's not influenced by individuals or media or optics or anything like that. Because the moment you start doing that, the moment that you start wavering off that threat-based methodology, you actually inherently create um, you know, an intrinsic vulnerability. And that's not what you want. You want to make sure that your right. process day in and day out is the same. So <clears throat> what, what did we hear in the testimony? We heard that there was an argument or disagreement between the president and the special agent in charge uh, of the Secret Service on that day as to whether or not the president can go whether march or drive or just you know be present at the U.S. Capitol. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a little bit of disagreement as to what uh, what happened in that vehicle. Uh, we mm-hmm. do know that through previous testimony, there was um, a disagreement between mm-hmm. the service and the president of the United States, but that's not uncommon. We just don't know the the level that that disagreement raised to. Now, it was raised in testimony that the the president was so angry that he lunged at a steering wheel uh you know there was a material statement that the the president potentially uh, you know assaulted the special agent in charge i mm-hmm. all of that will come out those are nuanced you know issues that will will come out in testimony because it's easy you can bring those agents in and and get the factual representation of what happened but what what I think is 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 being missed in that back and forth is the fact that there was a disagreement. I don't think that that is being disputed, and that the protective model that the Secret Service applies actually worked, right? Because mm-hmm. as angry as the president and his staff or others may have been, that the Secret Service wasn't immediately going to acquiesce and bring the president to the U.S. Capitol, as angry as they were. The special agent in charge and other Secret Service representatives, you know, held true to the methodology in 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 the way that they conduct themselves, and didn't allow 
for the president to get put into harm's way, even if it was self-induced, even if he was riling up the crowd. And as much as he says, they're not here for me, they're, you know, they're not going to hurt me. Well, we don't know that. That's an assumption. So the crowd can get out of control. Sure. Exactly. So I think that this should be seen as a success that the the protective model works for the Secret Service. Now, it makes for like shocking testimony to hear uh, that the president was lunging. I'm, I'm sure there was a lot of um, verbal tongue lashing in that vehicle. And I've seen protectees get upset when they don't get what they want or yeah. things are not going their way. But that's OK. Right. We're not there to be their best friends. Secret Service isn't there to appease everybody and make everybody happy all the time. They're there for a very specific reason. One mm-hmm. is obviously the, the the most notable is to make sure that that individual is safe and secure. But there's also a bigger construct here. And I think that, you know, I, I'd, I'd be interested over time to go back to the special agent in charge, Bobby Engel, uh, and, and get his thoughts on this. But mm-hmm. it's. It's also the Secret Service protects the office of the presidency. There's a continuity issue here that's bigger than the individual. And and I think that that's the way when I was an agent, we always looked at protection in terms of how do we it's protecting the individual, but the office of the presidency at the same time. The office of the presidency is something bigger. Um, And I, I think that that's an important construct because to me, it was always a. Uh, an overarching justification for this security, these security measures that we put around political leadership. Now that that gets to the question that often pops up on people's minds, um, having to do with doing what the president says. Mm-hmm. As a general rule, in the executive branch, you work for the president of the United States <laughs> in any agency or department, mm-hmm. and if the president issues a directive that is not illegal, that is, it is in correspondence with the Constitution and and the laws of the United States, Um, then in general, you follow it unless it raises an ethical, non-legal, but an ethical issue that you personally cannot carry out. So the president says, I want to give a speech saying this. If that's a legal speech to give, then normally you would go along with it, but a cabinet official may decide to resign because they don't agree with the ethics of it. The Secret Service is in a slightly different position, but similar, which is the president says, I want to go to the Capitol. That is a legal directive. There there is nothing against the Constitution or the laws of the United States saying, drive me down Constitution Avenue or down Pennsylvania Avenue, depending on where he is, and get me closer to the Capitol. But it clashes with the the mission and the oath of the Secret Service to, to protect this person and, as you said, the institution. So it sounds to me like you're saying that the special agent in charge could, in a sense, overrule the president on a wish. And the president says, uh, you will take me there. And the special agent in charge says, no, sir, I will not. Does that sound right in an extreme situation? Uh, yes, it, it, it is right. And I think you have to look back at 18 U.S.C. 3056, which is the the, the, the guiding statute of the Secret Service. We're we're mandated by Congress to provide the protection of of the president of the United States by statute. So here we have, you're right, it, part of the executive branch, you're taking a direct order, but we also cannot violate the statute that we are beholden to. And at the end of the day, this is going to come down to a life safety issue. 
if there's a clear and present life safety issue, which I have seen before, I have mm-hmm. seen the president of the United States say, I am not doing X. And because of exigent circumstances, the, the, the detail leader at the time and the shift leaders were like, yes, you are. Either you're going to do it on your own or mm-hmm. we're physically going to make you do it. Yeah. And I don't want to get too much into that, but I, I yeah. witnessed that firsthand shocking moment for the president to realize someone for the first time probably was telling them no. Um, but that was based upon a life safety issue. Mm-hmm. Afterwards, the president fully understood what, you know, what was going on, why that decision was made. But, you know, the Secret Service, you know, tries its best to not get into situations where sure. Decisions may may seem political or guided by any other principle other than a, a life safety issue. And the way that they do that is they work through, they try to get ahead of problems, uh, work with staff, try to build a consensus around, hey, this is what we're, we're we want to make this decision. This is our recommendation. We're not going to do X, Y, and Z because these are the threats. This is what we've identified. This is what we cannot mitigate. And a lot of times that happens in, in a foreign country. Mm-hmm. Those those conversations because we don't we don't we don't control the environment we're we're actually beholden to other people so uh, but I have seen it but you try to work through those those those, those difficulties um, to make sure that you're you're able to um, not get to the point where you have a protectee and the detail leader arguing uh, and having that disagreement. Yeah, and I. I- sounds like there's a real difference between a scheduled event and something that comes up in in the heat of the moment, right? So if if the president had on his schedule that day, I want to drive, you know, we're going to drive near the Capitol, mm-hmm. there would have been advance work, there would be measures set up, there would be that 360 concentric issue mm-hmm. that you talked about. But all of a sudden, just saying, turn the wheel, we're going Capitol Hill, it sounds like the the mission of the Secret Service under those circumstances, given the threat, would would not let them do that. Correct. Yeah. And yeah. I and, and listen, I think this this shows, you know, that you know, the training, the tactics, and experience of the Secret Service leadership on that day prevailed. Why? Because they they didn't make that decision not to go based upon anything other than the intelligence, that mm-hmm. tactical intelligence that they were receiving near real time. I mean, they're hearing the police radio saying, you know, man with a gun in the tree, arrest being made. Like they know just beyond the fence line, there are individuals, whatever their intent may or may not have been, that there were individuals with weapons. No agent in their right mind, even if it's a a, a crowd that, you know, loves the protectee, thinks that they are, uh, you know, you know the uh, almost almost godlike. It doesn't matter. There is still an unmitigated threat that no agent will ever put the president or any protectee into that environment. It's um, it's just counter to what we do. You do it once, you you lose, you break that methodology, right? You break that protective methodology. Yeah. And so I, I think that on on January sixth, the Secret Service was tested. And they 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 proved that the model worked. And I think that you know time will tell that you know time will I think the story will evolve. I think the uh, the distractions of did he lunge for the wheel, not lunge for the wheel, all of that will resolve itself. 
But I think history will tell that on that day, the Secret Service, the leadership, and it really came down to one person. They were really tested. And, you know, everything that agents trained for for years in that one moment, in time, like it came to fruition right there and then. Mm-hmm. And it worked. And yeah. yes, you have the president who's really upset, right? That was a seminal moment. That was like, that was his, you know, his last stand to go to Congress and, and, and uh, you know, try to get his presidency back, right? That was, he wanted this grand you know, gesture, this grand moment, and he didn't get it. I think about like the pressure in the seconds before the special agent in charge had to make that decision. Mm-hmm. But I know he made it with, with a clear rationale because he knew the consequences. He knew like the likelihood that something would go wrong and he knew the consequences when it did. Understood. Well, let's, let's turn and apply all of this to, you know, what many people fear is becoming a period of uh, uptick in violence. Obviously some of that is in just the statistics. Uh, There is, um, there has been, if not a wave, at least a trend towards more things like, mass shootings at schools. We, we've got that and other issues in society overall, uh, but also some negative trend lines regarding political violence and the, the possibility of fault lines across many societal issues um, exploding into actual physical conflict. The, the Secret Service has a lot of experience with both you know, predicting threats, investigating potential threats, mitigating against threats, and and ultimately responding to threats. Is there a way that some of that methodology and some of those experiences born in blood could actually be transferred to the general public for personal security or to other institutions like schools and churches uh, without jeopardizing the mission of the Secret Service itself? Well, yes. And this isn't, there's no secrets here on, on this. The Secret Service has a uh, division called the National Threat Assessment uh, Center that puts out publicly available information uh, in tools and resources to help mitigate these exact the, the 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 list that you just you know put forth. There's mitigation tools and awareness around issues of mass shooting, mass violence, school shootings. How do you take uh, the the methodology of threat mitigation that the Secret Service has. So that's in terms of identifying a threat, mm-hmm. putting the right control measures into place, early intervention, so that 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 potential threat doesn't metastasize into something that leads to violent acts. Mm-hmm. The Secret Service spent a lot of time coming up with these models and share it, and they share it publicly in their resources for. Mm-hmm. Corporate ins- institutions, uh, houses of worship, schools. There's uh, there's a bunch of resources available that the Secret Service loves to share. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it's in their best interest. If we can start taking what we know and applying that to different aspects of our community, that could then reduce acts of violence. Every Secret Service in the agent agency would go out every single day and, and preach that, but we don't have to because the National Threat Assessment Center has put together these really, really remarkable uh, pieces of content that are so additive right now in, in the world that we're living in. 
It's just being able to execute on those models with, within the community in, in getting the buy-in on it. And it's thinking about, this isn't about mental health. This is really thinking about behavior and early identification of behavioral anomalies that we can address, whether it's in the workplace, in a, in a uh, uh, educational environment, or even in a house of worship. What are those, what are, what are behavioral anomalies uh, that we need to key in on understand them and then how do we provide the right resources to so that you know behavior that is questionable doesn't continue on the continuum to violent acts let's talk about the personal side too so let's mm-hmm. say that you are um just a, a citizen concerned or perhaps a parent of, of children and you're mm-hmm. you're concerned about the rise of school violence or you're concerned about the possibility of yeah, peaceful protests that you happen across or even participate in um, becoming a source of violence from counter protesters uh, or from kind of a mob mentality. What are some things that that you have learned from how to protect, how, how to help protectees get out of situations like that and not become a victim that can apply to people in their personal life? What are the the things to watch for that people should do to protect themselves and people around them from violence out there in society that can get out of control? Well, it, what I tell everybody is we're, we're living in a very unique threat environment where, you know, it, it's dynamic, it's unpredictable, you know, the shootings are out of control, but just in terms of you know, violent behavior by individuals walking down the street, you walk in the, down the street in New York City these days, you uh, you see individuals lashing out at, at at others, trying to punch and kick, and it. We're living in a in a really unique moment, and it necessitates that everybody have an elevated level of situational awareness. And what I mean by that is, take that one second to understand what's going on around you as you enter into a new environment. When you walk out of a building, take a quick look left and right. It takes a fraction of a second to understand like, is there, is there a street fight going on? Is there somebody that I should be concerned with across the street? Understand the, the environment that you're going into and have some sort of notional plan as to what would you do if X happened? If I'm walking to, uh, from my office to Grand Central Station and, you know, gunfire starts happening on the street, what would I do? And the, 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 the thought here is to get people thinking in advance of a crisis, because the moment to think about like, oh, what, what, what am I going to do if someone you know, starts shooting a gun isn't in the moment of someone shooting a gun. Have some sort of personal plan that you can react to or get in that mindset. But it all comes down to situational awareness, understanding the world around you. And that's become so difficult these days because everyone is buried into their phone. You, I, 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 I've watched the 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 video of the Brooklyn subway shooting, and the like. The immediate aftermath is the smoke is clearing inside the, the 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 subway car. There were people who were still seated on their phones, still looking, still looking or texting yep. or doing. So. They were so focused on that little box. Yeah that they didn't get their ass up out of the seat yep. to flee the threat environment. Right on. And to me, it's it's shocking, but you see it constantly mm-hmm. 
where you know people are just heads down, they're, they have the blinders on. But the environment around us necessitates us to take a look up, look around for a moment, operate more in the, like a condition yellow where you have an elevated sense of what, what what's going on around you. Mm-hmm. And you're able to build in a little bit of agility into being able to react if something does occur, right? It, this isn't saying, hey, every time you walk out, like have this big tactical plan in place and this is what you're going to do exactly. You, you, you can't plan for that kabuki dance. You just have to play to the environment understand the environment and then have some sort of plan in place. Should something occur, you're not mm-hmm. caught off guard. You're not shocked or stunned to like an acute incident and you're able to react to the best that you can. Yeah. Where do you stand on the issue of realistic drills for elementary schools on active shooters? Because there's been a trend over the last few years and it's been useful for risk security professionals that Schools have advanced training for teachers and regular drills for students on, in the case of an active shooter, you know, you, you run, hide, fight, and, and here's specific ways you do it. And let's analyze the school and have everybody walk through scenarios. Uh, and yet, even with the increased number of incidents and horrific incidents, you still have an infinitesimal chance of any individual being in one of those scenarios. And does the psychological psychological damage to a five, six, seven-year-old of going through that and the possibility of giving some uh, children ideas about doing that, is is that in fact a greater risk than somebody not having gone through a drill? What's the balance there? Well, the what you don't want to do is you don't want to broker in fear, right? If I start invoking fear through training, then... The, the elements of, of what I'm trying to get across are going to be lost. So this is about the delivery of training um, for elementary and, and middle school students. There's no need for them to go through any type of dynamic training where, yeah. you know, they're running from a presumed shooter. Yeah. Yeah. I, we don't like, we don't like trash cans on fire to do a fire drill, right? <laughs> what do we do? We're able to, hmm. we're able to contextualize, Hey, this yeah. is the danger but this is what you need to do. And let's, hey, what do we do? Let's do it calmly. Let's do this. We repeat it. There are ways to do that um, without invoking fear for, for active shooters, hostile assailants, uh, and a multitude of things. But it's all in the delivery. I think that because the nature of hostile intruders and active shooters are are so dynamic, right? It, you know, it, 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 in a second, everything changes that we have this thought that we have to you know, we have to, you know, practice like we're going to play one day, right? Like we have to, we have to practice in this dynamic environment. But, you know, David, you have small children, I do as well. And they, their ability to digest that and then retain the teaching elements are, are finite. And you have to just walk them through very simply, this is what you're going to do. Even if the, this is what you're going to do is listen to this teacher or yeah. listen to this announcement or go here until somebody helps you. Every school is different. So it's not like you can say you could, this is the structure. But we have to have a delivery method of training that that makes it understood by the lowest common denominator. And everyone's operating off the same sheet of music that we're, we're not creating anxiety through, through training. Otherwise, they're going to get turned off by it. Yeah. And there, there's anxiety for adults, too. I shouldn't mm-hmm. minimize that. Um 
my, my wife and I helped with my son's previous school talking through a lot of their staff and teachers on, you know, some of these security basic, very basic security measures. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could tell there was some palpable anxiety. I mean, the words weren't said, but there was a definite feeling of, you know, people crossing their arms, getting, getting nervous saying, I, I don't, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to think mm-hmm. about having to grab scissors or a, or a pen or something in an ultimate case. And these are the adults. These are the authority figures in the room. These are not the, you know, six, seven, eight year old, you know, children having to try mm-hmm. to process the reality of something like that. So I think, I think you're right. There's, there's definitely a way of preparing for a scenario that doesn't involve traumatizing those involved unnecessarily, Mm -hmm. because as far as I know, there is no actual evidence showing that potentially traumatizing training is actually effective Mm -hmm. in that scenario. Anybody can find an isolated incident. You can find an anecdote where it Mm -hmm. really did seem to help in one case and and an anecdote where it didn't. But in terms of a, a wealth of data that gives us confidence that putting hundreds, thousands, eventually millions of people through traumatized real life like training provides an ultimate benefit. We just, we just don't have that yet. We don't know if that's going to be worth the definite cost to the psychology of adults and children alike, uh, to help against that again, hopefully very small chance of an actual incident. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I, I agree to all of that. I think that there was never an intent that the training would be, uh, you know, create trauma for children, but as a consequence, it has. So we have to rethink the model. And I think, I I know that there are a lot of school districts that, that have rethought that model and and apply uh, a less dynamic approach. Um, And they tier it to, it's not one training type of curriculum for, uh, for all it's tiered into different grade levels. The audiences. Uh, as, as you get more mature and you're able to understand the reality of what's going on, maybe you add more context to why you're doing this type of training or doing this type of action. But it, 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 it really has to be done where you're not brokering in fear. You're actually just going through mm-hmm. those, you know, uh, listen, a, a building fire is extremely traumatic. Yeah. You know, it's the yeah. it, it smoke conditions, loss of sight, you know, you, loss of breathing like that, that can be very, but, we don't talk like we, we never talk about right. all of those, the, uh, you know, uh, uh, horrific elements of a building fire, the, the you know, uh, you know, the heat, the smoke conditions. Um, what we talk about is, okay, everyone line up, let's get out of the building quickly and efficiently. And yep. we're going to go to this, this rallying point. And I'm distilling this down. So, you know, hopefully people don't yep. criticize my comments here, but it's not that we, we don't broker in the fear there. So we shouldn't have to do it with a hostile intruder even though those are very traumatic incidents, mm-hmm. we don't have to you know, pressure test our, our youngest children right. to that environment every day. What about the uh, political violence side of it? So the obvious answer from a, from a pure risk professional point of view is mm-hmm. if there is a large protest going on, mm-hmm. and there is a reasonable chance of a large counter protest on a on a very contentious issue, let's say one triggered by a recent Supreme Court decision. Um, the, the risk professional advice is stay away, you know, get mm-hmm. off the potential X. And yet that may not be the right answer for a representative democracy 
with freedom of expression and freedom of assembly. It may be the right thing to do for any particular person on any particular side of any particular cause might be mm -hmm. to get out there and peacefully um, make your views known as part of a collection of like-minded people. Mm -hmm. So uh, it feels weird saying just avoid all crowds because mm -hmm. crowds are how political action can get done in, in this country and can get done safely as we've seen in the past. And yet I do have this fear in an era of an increased number of shootings, an increased number of mass shootings, that issues of protest become issues of potential targeting. And mm -hmm. how do you deal with that? To tell people in a representative democracy, get out there, make your voice felt, but don't become a victim or don't lead to a cycle of violence. Well, I mean, so as a risk practitioner, First and foremost, what we do is we over-index on telling people that you know protests are good. They're exercising freedom of speech. It's your constitutional right. Please do it. Like there should be nothing that would should ever impede that, right? But as you're doing it, understand the 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 escalation to potential violence, right? Yeah, and the situational there, awareness you spoke of earlier. It's it's situational awareness. It's listening to the change of tone and rhetoric from either the side that you're on or somebody that may be counter-protesting you. Protests are very smart, right? They're, they're educated. They're out there for a very specific reason. So they understand like what those changes are. And if one side of a political spectrum tries to escalate, don't match it in kind, right? Learn and understand de-escalation techniques that that don't allow a peaceful situation to turn into something that 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 could be tragic for everybody involved. I think the challenges these days is that you know let's let's go back to even like the George Floyd uh, protests where you had peaceful protesters, and this happens not just with George Floyd, it, ha it actually happens time and time again, we have peaceful protesters that actually have nefarious individuals who join the group literally to cause harm, literally to cause anxiety and problems and try to undermine the credibility of that, that core group. And we've seen that. Right, right. Uh, we've seen it on the left and we've seen it on the right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a tactic. It's a, it's a proven tactic. Um, you as an individual, if you're engaging in that that peaceful protest and tensions are rising, remove yourself from it, right? Like you'll be able to make your point another day. This issue isn't going away tomorrow. So you'll be able to come back tomorrow. You'll be able to voice your opinion absent of, you know, fear of, of violence. Um, and I think it's just being smarter around how do you engage? How do you engage with counter protesters? Um, and that's what like law enforcement tries to keep these groups separate all the time, but sometimes it's difficult. And as these groups come together, tensions rise because, you know, my personal ethos around or and thoughts around something may be different than yours. And everyone wants to be right in this. And, and the reality is no one's going to be right. Right. It's it, it, it's hard to change somebody's personal belief. But guess what's not going to do it? You know shouting at them, insulting them, mm -hmm. escalating, calls for violence. Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> not going to do anything except transcend from yeah. political rhetoric 
into violence. And we've seen that. Uh, and I, I call it out all the time. I call it out on the left and I call it out on the right. Yeah. Like that is just it. it it's de- detractive from what like you're trying to do in that moment. Right on. Well, John, as you know, we like to close out our conversations <laughs> on chatter by reaching into our chatter box and pulling out a yes. pre-printed random question. Sometimes, sometimes they're personal. Sometimes they're more <laughs> analytic. I can't tell you what it's going to be until I reach in and, and grab one. What common misperception about your profession or specialty makes your blood boil? And I'll let you choose here. It can be the Secret Service uh, profession, or it can be risk, risk analysis and risk prevention. Um, but what common misperception about your profession makes your blood boil? Well, it's, it, it's not makes my blood boil, but I think as a risk practitioner, there's a, there's a notion that you can solve like any type of problem that's presented to you. Any, everything from, <laughs> hey, can you let me know the probability of a Russian invasion into Ukraine in the same vein of, hey, lock my keys in my car. Can you tell me how to open the door? It's like, well, okay. Um, I think a lot of people use yeah. risk practitioners, especially if they came out of like the the FBI or the Secret Service or some sort of government agency, uh, as sort of this like Swiss Army knife. Like we can solve all problems. We can mm-hmm. we have an answer for everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you don't, when you don't have that instantaneous answer. Like, well, like, oh, I thought I thought you were in risk. Yeah, like, what good are you? Well, I am in risk, but I, I I just don't know like how to, you know, take the plane off of you know autopilot and land it myself. I just I just don't know how to do that. So mm-hmm. uh, I think that it's it's understanding what, what risk practitioners actually do and it's formulaic. It's looking at and assessing threats and vulnerabilities, understanding the consequence of those threats and vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm to a certain issue and then applying the right control measures. I mean, that's the framework, but everyone is thinks that you can do all things for all people at all times. You know, it kind of reminds me of one of the themes, perhaps the main theme of uh, Juliet Kayyem's book. Um, <laughs> you know, Juliet, well, um, is do I, but her book, The Devil Never Sleeps, really is about this theme of we focus so much on left of boom and making sure we can prevent. There you go. You've, you've got yeah, a copy I'm of holding, it as I do. I'm holding the book up. So yeah. um, we, we, we have this this real draw, almost a magnetic pull to mm-hmm. we can just get better at preventing anything bad from happen. And we expect mm-hmm. professionals, including risk professionals, to be able to do that. And yet they're going to happen. There are going to be disasters mm-hmm. and we need to learn to you know, deal with the results, uh, try to minimize the harm from disasters and not neglect that because we have this false illusion that we can prevent all of them in the first place. I I think her, she has a great line in the book and it's a talking point of hers around, you know, just making it less bad, right? Like what we need to do is just make it less bad. The world's bad enough and these issues are bad enough. Like how do we make them less bad? Um, And I know it's distilling it down and simplifying it, but she's right. I mean, that's what it's risk mitigation. You're never going to eliminate risk. Yeah. How do we, how do we reduce it as much as possible and mitigate it where, where we can? Well, John, you've made me feel less bad in this conversation. I appreciate you sharing your experiences, your insights and your thoughts on things. And um, hopefully a lot of listeners get a lot out of this. People who haven't learned the history of the Secret Service, but people who haven't thought about some of the bigger issues we've discussed as well. So thank you for joining me on Chatter. 
Oh, no. Thank you, David. I appreciate it. And I uh, appreciate spending some time with your audience. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. Chatter.